Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing all right? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, one of the things I love about church is that it really is diverse. You know, if you look around, you see a lot of people who are not like you. Uh, but in spite of our diversity, there's always things within humanity that overlaps, that is similar. Uh, for example, all of us deal with fear to one degree or another. Now, we don't all have the same fears, but all of us deal with fear from one degree or another. We wrestle with fear. So, for example, how many of you guys are afraid of heights? A few of you. How many of you guys are afraid of spiders? Yes. How many of you guys are afraid of germs? <laughs> yeah, a few of you. Yeah. Uh, how many of you are afraid of public speaking? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, you hate talking in front of class, uh, companies, or a church. Uh, you get butterflies in your stomach, pal sweaty palms. Your heart feels like it starts racing. For example, you would never attend this church ever again if I randomly called on you and asked you to come up on stage and share something about you. Let's try that out this morning. Uh, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You know, they say that public speaking is the number one fear. So like you list all the phobias. They say number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Go figure that out. You know, people would rather be the one in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. I think that's a little silly, but they say that that is the number one fear. Uh, as many fears as I struggle with, public speaking is not one of them, except when it comes to the radio. I spoke on the radio this last Friday, and I love public speaking. But the problem is, is that whenever I do public speaking, I always have a script that I have prayed over, and I know this is where I'm going with it. When it comes to radio, they just make it up as they go along, and they could ask you whatever they want, and everyone's listening, and you have no idea how many trillions of people are listening, because I know it's trillions. Trillions of people <laughs> are just listening in on that radio broadcast. And so this last Friday, I got invited to be on, and, and typically it's all in relationship to the book, but for this particular one, I had been on a few weeks earlier. They loved it so much, they called me up, and they said, hey, would you be willing to come on and talk about Star Wars? And I'm like, um, first of all, I'm a nerd, so yes. Second of all, that has nothing to do with my book, but still yes. And so they invite me on. And, and so I have to do a lot of praying ahead of time of like, dear God, you got me into this mess. You're going to have to get me through it. Uh, what is it you want me to say? And what's interesting to me is that where God guides, he provides. God always gives me something. And so they asked me, you know, right up at the front, you know, why, was Star, why is Star Wars so popular? Oh, let me give you the answer to that, you know. Uh, so here's what's interesting to me. I saw Star Wars in the theater for the first time when I was four years old. I went and saw episode five in the theater. Talk about a historic moment. But what was confusing to a four-year-old is that it's called episode five, but it's only the second movie. How do you do the math on that one? That's just confusing. Uh, but it's during that movie that the most iconic phrase is ever spoken when Darth Vader's like, Luke, I'm your father. This is a huge plot to us that no one saw coming. Luke, I'm your father. And this is what Luke says. No. That's what every dad wants to hear. <laughs> Caleb, I'm your father. No. It's true. I mean, you look just like me. No. Yeah. <laughs> but Darth Vader has to be like the worst dad ever. You know, the first thing he says, hey, Luke, join the dark side with me. You realize that the dark side stole his arms, his legs. He can't breathe right on his own. Uh, he lost his wife, two kids. But you need to come join the dark side. Sure, Dad, let me get my lightsaber and sign right on the dotted line. No problem. 
Um, so anyways, I, I start, you know, going off the cuff. I'm talking, and, uh, and they're laughing. And also I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to make a serious point with this. And uh, so I get back to, you know, tying it back into the book is that all of us have this desire to be significant, to be secure, and to be the hero of our story. We all would love to be Luke Skywalker, even though we're probably Jar Jar Binks, if we're to be honest. <laughs> but here's the thing. I love to share. I love the opportunity to speak publicly and to share God's word in creative ways that help people to understand what it is that he's communicating. But here's the deal. I used to hate it. I used to hate public speaking. I would get so scared. I, and it wasn't just like a, a pestering fear. It was like a paralyzing fear where I was like, uh, just like, God, why in the world would you ask me to be a preacher if I'm so scared of public speaking? This makes no sense, you know? But here's the deal. God never promised that he wouldn't ask us to do scary things. We can't allow our fears to interfere with who he created us to be and called us to do. We live in a scary world where God has promised, I will be with you and I will help you. So just like when I approach the radio programs and I'm scared to death, as long as I've got God by my side, I know that he will get me through it. In the same way God is saying to you, whatever your fears might be, I promise to be with you, never to leave you, nor to forsake you, but to empower you. So let's stand and read our theme verse this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And keep in mind that, that Timothy is a young minister. Uh, he has been left at a church that has got a lot of problems. Paul can't be with him physically. But Paul writes these words to, to Timothy. For God, oh wait, my version's different than the one on the screen. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You may be seated. I memorized it as a kid, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Timothy is here on his own. Paul can't be there physically for him, but Paul wants Timothy to know that, Timothy, you are not alone. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Holy Spirit who is there to give you power, love, and a sound mind to give you wisdom and courage. It's the Holy Spirit that helped me to go from hating public speaking to loving public speaking. See, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we can get a little fuzzy. You know, we often know a lot about God the Father. We know about Jesus, God's Son. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we can get a little fuzzy as to what that's all about. When the Jonas Brothers were popular, everyone knew Kevin, Nick, and Thank you. Joe, yes, we know who the fan in the room is. Uh, but no one knew about their younger brother, Frankie. In fact, they called him the bonus Jonas. How would you like to be that person in the family? Everyone else is well known, but you're the bonus Jonas, the bonus one. You know, nobody wrote his name like on their folder with a heart like I love Frankie. Uh, you know, no one had him on their wall. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is often gets overlooked or ignored. In fact, Francis Chan wrote a book on the Holy Spirit and called it The Forgotten God. He is often overlooked or ignored. But I was thinking this week about how the primary person in the Old Testament is God the Father. He's the voice from the clouds, a bit nebulous, transcendent. In the Gospels, the primary person is Jesus. The God-man, he comes down, he can be seen, he can be heard, he can be felt, he can be touched. In book of Acts, through the book of Revelation, the primary person is the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will not only dwell amongst you, but will dwell within you. So here we see this, per, this progression from Old Testament to New Testament, from God being nebulous to God being near, from God being transcendent to God being imminent, God getting closer and closer with every redemptive step in history. It's almost like going from watching a celebrity on TV to seeing them like in a stadium to meeting them face to face. God has been progressively getting closer and closer. Isn't that beautiful? Before Jesus preaches his first sermon, or performs his first miracle, he has to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon him when he's in the Jordan River and he comes on him like a dove. Before the early church goes out and preaches their first sermon or performs their first miracle, they have to wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. You see, you can't have the effectiveness of the early church if you don't have the empowering of the early church, which is the Holy Spirit. It is not by might nor by power, by our own strength, but by God that we are able to do what we need to do. We need the Holy Spirit. You see, God's not a coach who sits on the sidelines drawing up these ridiculous plays and expects us to go carry it out. God rather gets on the field. He tackles people and helps us get into the end zone. God draws near. Isn't that good? Through the Holy Spirit, we have strength for today, hope for tomorrow. Through the Holy Spirit, we will never truly be alone. Through the Holy Spirit, the force is strong with us. But Jesus, but just because we have the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has us. I'm going to say that again. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. It is a package deal. But just because you have the Holy Spirit does not mean that the Holy Spirit has you. Just because the Holy Spirit is resident in your life doesn't mean that he's the president of your life. That is a daily decision, not one and none. You don't just come up to the altar one time, say, hey, God, I give you my life, and then walk away, and everything's hunky-dory. It is a daily act of surrender. But if we're to be honest with ourselves... God is not always the priority that we want him to be or say that he is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But we tend to focus on all the things and then put God in second, third, fourth, or last place. Jesus turns around and says, no, he has to be first and foremost. Now, I'm not very territorial, but I do have a favorite chair. Do any of you guys have a favorite chair? A few of you, yeah. I have a favorite chair. It's the one thing in my house that I wish was off limits. It's the chair Goldilocks would say is just right. But it's because it's so plush, everyone wants to sit in it. Even the dog loves my chair. Now, she knows that she's not supposed to be in it. Like, if I come home, she will jump out of that chair and onto the couch and pretend like she's never been anywhere near that chair and look at me like, I'm innocent. But my chair is a rocking chair, so it's still rocking because she just jumped off of it. And I'm like, I know that you're guilty. How often do we try to sit in God's chair? We want to be the king or queen of our life. But when things start falling apart, Jesus, take the wheel. He's like, I'm supposed to have the wheel like all the time. We try to customize God, dictating what he would and would not do. We cut and paste scripture choosing the promises we love and ignoring the commands we don't. You can't mod God. You cannot customize God. We are created in God's image. God is not created in our image. God won't share the chair. You can't, he can't be fired. He will never grow tired and he won't retire. He won't share the chair. But we try when we live a my will rather than thy will kind of life. We try to half cheek it with God. 
Like, God, you can have this half, and I'll have this half. And God's like, no, it doesn't work that way. He's like, I get the throne, you do not. When we make the decisions, but then blame him for the consequences. You ever realize that about humanity? We're really good about trying to run things, but as soon as anything bad goes on, God, why, where are you? He's like, well, if I was sitting on the chair, this would be different. We get confused when we're not growing in love, joy, peace, and patience. But you can't have the fruit of the Spirit if you don't have your roots in the Spirit. I'm going to say that again. You cannot have the fruit of the Spirit if you don't have your roots embedded in the Spirit. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, notice that that's not the end, just as you received him, continue to live your lives in him. Don't just receive him, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Where do you have your roots established these days? Do you spend more time with Hollywood than you do God's holy word? Do you spend more time at the club than you do at church? Do you know more about sports than you do about spirituality? Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you and you will bear much fruit. How do you bear much fruit? By remaining in him. If you want to be fruity, then you need to get your booty doing God's duty. (laughs) Amen. Three years of seminary for that. My professors would be proud. You can't have fruitfulness without faithfulness. But it has to be faithfulness over the long haul. It's not just good enough to be faithful from time to time and then expect massive results. That's like going to the gym two or three times a year and then expecting massive results. It's faithfulness over the long haul. Even when it feels like you're in the university of adversity, How many of you guys are enrolled in the University of Adversity right now? You're taking a class in worst day ever, and it's like every day. You're taking a class in sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're taking a class in more bills than thrills. You're taking a class in kids are a blessing from God, but... (laughs) It's the people who remain faithful throughout the University of Adversity who end up with the graduate level love, joy, peace, and patience. You can't get graduate-level love unless you pass the classes in the University of Adversity when love is hard, when love is painful, when love is the last thing you want to do. I performed a wedding a few years ago where the couple planted a unity tree. I've done lots of, like, unity candles, sand pourings. This was the first time it was a unity tree. They put down soil from each of their hometowns and then buried their vows next to the tree. It was super romantic. It was a symbol of their lives becoming one. The tree would be nourished by their diverse soil. Tragically, the tree died because some of the oil came from, some of the soil came from Iowa. I'm kidding, the tree didn't die. <laughs> but how much funnier would that story be if it did? If you visit the botanical garden, you will find plants from around the world. There's a desert environment. There's a tropical environment. There's an English garden and a Japanese garden. Different plants need different soils. There's a reason why you've never seen palm trees growing in Wisconsin, because they're smart. (laughs) If we want the fruit of the Spirit, we have to have our roots in the Spirit. We need God's thoughts shaping our thoughts. We are so confused that we're not reflecting God when we haven't spent very much time with God. It's not that complicated. 
to have the fruit of the Spirit, you have to spend time with the Spirit. You have to be about the spiritual things in order to reflect spiritual things. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. How often are you supposed to be reflecting? Day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, all of us would love to be the person who everything prospers. But how many of us want to be the person meditating on God's word day and night? So immersed in God's word that his word is immersed in us. And we are like a sponge that we reflect whatever it is that we've been soaking up all the time. According to this verse, the person who yields that fruit in season is the one who's been soaking up God's word continuously. We've been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit Nine characteristics that we would love to define us, that if people were to say, hey, Pastor Dan, what is he like? You'd be like, well, Pastor Dan's love, joy, peace, patience. Now, don't start laughing because I know that's not where I'm at yet, but that's where I want to be. I want to be known for those characteristics. So Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. How many of you need more of that? How many of you need your spouse to have more of that? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how many of you need your kids to have more of that? Yeah. This morning, the one fruit I want to focus on, so the majority of it, I just really wanted to focus on and hammer home that we're not going to get this unless we are getting our roots deep into God. Okay, that's where I wanted to start. But for the rest of us, I just want to talk about kindness. Everyone say kindness. The fruit of kindness. Mankind is to be kind. Everyone say that. Mankind is to be kind. Not just act kind. And this is different. God has not called us to just act kind. He wants us to be kind. Now, the, the difference is, is it's easy to be kind to someone face to face, but be mean to them in your head. <laughs> to be mean to them behind their back. Now, if you really are kind, then that's not going to be an issue. You will find yourself kind in your thoughts and kind behind people's backs and kind when you're going through Instagram and your knee-jerk reaction is, ugh. You, know, you will find that your responses will start changing over time. I will leave that alone. <laughs> when I was praying about kindness, I kept thinking about a story Jesus told called the parable of the good Samaritan. Even if you've never cracked open a Bible, been inside of a church, you have heard the phrase, Good Samaritan, or very likely have heard the phrase Good Samaritan. When someone open, holds open a door, offers to clean your mess, bakes you chocolate chip cookies, not raisin cookies, chocolate chip cookies, laughs at your jokes even when they're not funny, we say they are being a Good Samaritan or a Donna Cole. Either one. Either one will work. <laughs> but in the first century, those two words did not go together. There was no such thing as a Good Samaritan in the mind of many of the first century Jews. It was like saying SpongeBob round pants. It made no sense. In the first century, Jewish people had a law that said if a wall should fall on someone on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be cleared away to see if the injured man was a Jew or a Gentile. If they were Jewish, you could continue to take the rubble off them and save them. If they were Gentile, you had to leave them there till the next day so that you weren't working on the Sabbath. Isn't that awful? 
but that shows the level of tension that there was between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, which is important when we're reading this story because we, we tend to read Scripture anachronistically. We already know the end. You know, we already know how things unfold. We know the happily ever after. But we need to read it the way they heard it initially in order to feel the weight of what Jesus is trying to say. Okay? So Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey. It was known as dangerous and, in fact, was referred to as the way of blood. What a horrible street name. How many of you guys want to travel down the way of blood? You know, I can't imagine, outside of maybe being like a vampire, where I'd be like, that's the road I want to take. You know? But it was aligned with like caves, so it was just really easy for robbers to hide out there. And so it was one of those streets where you needed to travel in a caravan and with other people. So he's walking by himself, and so he's vulnerable. He gets beat up, and he's left for dead. Verse 31 He's fortunate. Someone happens to come along. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he dot, dot, dot. If you had never heard this story before, you would expect that the priest is going to help the man, right? You expect someone who has come from Jerusalem, the holy city, who's just either preached a sermon on love your neighbor as yourself, or has at least heard it a thousand times, love your neighbor as yourself, is going to reach down and lend a hand. Say a prayer, at least throw some holy water at him from the distance. Do something to help the man. I have a relative, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to embarrass Garrett, but he was outside when an elderly neighbor woman ran to him and asked if he could help out her husband. And being a good neighbor, being someone who grew up in the church, he said, yeah, absolutely. I will be there. I will help. So he runs over there, and just as he's about to enter the house, she says, I, I don't know how to say this to you, but my husband's completely naked. In that moment, everything in him wanted to run the other way, pretend like he's getting a phone call from his wife. Oh, there's an emergency. I got to go take care of it. But being the godly Christian man that he is, he went in and helped out anyways and then took a two-day shower. You see, loving isn't always easy. It's not always easy to be the good Samaritan, to do the good thing. But here's the thing about the religious man, the priest who should have known better. It says he passed by on the other side. Wow. Wow. He doesn't even, you know, how are you? You know, I'll be back. I can't personally help you out, but I'm going to go get somebody. He passed by on the other side. How often do we do this? You know, the commercial comes on and they show the children who are starving in a third world country and we change the channel. We pass by the guy stuck in the snow. We let our wife clean up all the dishes while we watch the football game. How often do we pass by on the other side and refuse to do something when we could and we should? Verse 32. So to a Levite, another religious person, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, you sense a theme going on here. Jesus is trying to drive home a point. Just because you have a religion doesn't make you a good person. Just because you have the Holy Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit has you. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you are living out what it means to be the church. You could come in and hear, love your neighbor as yourself every Sunday from now to the time Jesus comes back to get you and not be good at loving your neighbor as yourself. You have to allow What's in here to get in here and change the way you live your life? 
If that's not happening, you are doing it wrong and you need to check up before you check out. It is tragic that these people are immersed in religion and yet it does not shape their actions in a positive way. A study was done at Princeton University where they gathered students together and they did this experiment where they taught them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then they asked them one by one to leave from there, go to another building on campus and deliver a presentation on what they had just heard. Now, what they didn't know is that planted along the way on the side of the road was an elderly gentleman who's dressed to look homeless, looked like he had just been beat up, who's laying on the side of the road. And they wanted to see how many of those students who had just heard about the Good Samaritan, who had just been given an assignment to teach others about the Good Samaritan, would stop and do something about it. Do you want to know what the percentage was? Less than 40% stopped and did anything about it. Just because you hear doesn't mean you know, doesn't mean you do. Which is why Jesus said, let him who has ears, let him hear. Jesus knew. How many of us are guilty of doing the same thing? Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now imagine you're in that original audience. You've heard Jesus telling this story. And, and with each hero that's come along, you're thinking, they're going to save the day. The priest, he's going to do it. The Levite, he's going to do it. And they're like, well, this is like a really bad story Jesus is telling. Now all of a sudden, he's like the Samaritan. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, and this is where Jesus throws in the plot twist. You see, Samaritans were actually part Jewish. In 722, when Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, they left part of the population behind. And so that population began to marry other diverse ethnicities, other diverse people groups and religions. And so they grew up to be what was called the Samaritans, who were part Jewish, part what other, other backgrounds and diverse groups had been in that area. And here's the thing. They retained a part of their Judaism to where they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they ignored the rest of them, and so they were looked at as being watered-down Jewish. Okay, That's why there's so much tension. Is they were looked at as like they're kind of religious, but they're missing out on the whole picture. They're the bad guys with a second-class citizen spiritually. You guys hear this? Okay. So Israel was divided into three major sections at this time. Galilee to the north, Samaria sandwiched in the middle, and Judea to the south. If you were a Jewish person in the first century and you wanted to go from Galilee to Judea, did you go through Samaria or did you go around Samaria? You would take a couple extra days to walk around it because you hated the Samaritans that much. That is awful. That is awful. So if the priest and Levite pass by this poor guy, then certainly the Samaritan is going to walk up and kick him in his face. But instead it says he took pity on him. What? What a plot twist. That's like reading a comic on Superman and it's Lex Luthor who saves the day. Yeah. It's like watching the Super Bowl and it's the ref who gets the game-winning touchdown pass. You know, it's like, what's going on? Twilight Zone, upside down world. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will re reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Basically gives him a blank check to take care of this guy. 
You see, what's interesting is that when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, it all starts off with a lawyer who asked the question, who is my neighbor? You see, he knew the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's looking for a loophole. It's like, all right, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but who exactly falls into that? Because there's some people I like, and there's a lot of people I don't like. Do I have to love them too? And what's interesting is that Jesus does not answer the question. He never says who your neighbor is, but rather teaches what it means to be neighborly. Because if you live your life to be neighborly, you won't care who your neighbor is. Because you'll stop looking at people as labels and you'll look at people as love. And you will start loving them as yourself. Question. How many of you would consider yourself rich? Keep your hand up. I want to see who I'm taking to lunch today. Okay. Technically, if you are in this country and you make $37,000 or more a year, you are rich. In fact, you're in the top 4% of the world. Okay? So every hand should probably go up in this country for those who would consider themselves rich. God told Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Your gifts, your intelligence, your experience, your money, it's not just for you. It's also for the people God wants to bless through you. God is not giving you your riches so you can fulfill your own wishes. My challenge to you this week is to look for ways to be a good Samaritan. Take some time to go visit an elderly grandparent. Hold the door open for someone. Offer to run and go get everyone's lunch at work. Wash the dishes without being asked. Let your spouse hold the remote for at least one night. And this becomes easier when we dig our roots deep into the kindness of God. I loved the fact, and, and Rachel didn't know what the theme this morning was. I loved the fact that the worship was all about the goodness of God. Because it's when we immerse ourselves in that goodness of God that we find ourselves starting to reflect the goodness of God. When we reflect on his kindness, we begin to reflect his kindness. Isn't that good? When we reflect on his kindness, we begin to reflect his kindness. 